My name is Harley Lewis. I'm Lawson Keeney. And my name is Jean Lewis. And welcome to The Long Watch, the internet's premier pro John Lithgow podcast where we stick to the list for better or worse. This week, Lawson might have an aneurysm. For in our deep dive today, we will be talking about the cat in the hat. I'm actually ready for it. I am ready for it. I'm, I'm optimistic. I think that there's some... It's going to be an interesting dynamic because we've never done a episode on something where our opinions have differed this wildly. So that'll be a new territory for us, which I'm interested to see how this goes. Yep. So, but before we get into that, we'll talk about what we've seen within the week. Lawson, why don't you start us off? Certainly. I saw Don't Breathe 2 at the theatres. Oh, God. I wouldn't call this one a horror movie. I think it's more of a thriller. It's directed by Rodo Sayegas, who was the co-writer on the first one. And it's set well after the first, like years after the first film. The blind man from the first movie, Norman, Norman Nordstrom, played by Stephen Lang, now has a young girl, probably 10, 11, 12, who he's calling his daughter. She's played by Madeline Grace, and her name is Phoenix. They live together in an isolation on the outskirts of Detroit, but one night their house is attacked by armed men who are looking for Phoenix. This is good. It's not as good as the first movie, but I'll give it props for having these new ideas and going in an entirely different direction with the thing. It is almost, in some ways, the Terminator 2 to Don't Breathe's Terminator 1, in that Stephen Lang switches from being Predator to being Guardian. But at the same time, they are constantly playing with that idea. They're constantly playing with your perception of the character, and they're challenging you to ask who you should really be rooting for here. Who do you want to have ultimate custody of this girl? Do you want Stephen Lang to have to have her, or do you want the armed intruders to have her? And it will make you change your mind multiple times before the end of the film, which is interesting. Knowing what I know about the blind man, I want none of them to have custody of the child. Grace is a is a fine young actress. That's some of the best stuff in the movie is the relationship between her and Norman. He's like all creepy survivalist, you know, teaching her how to su- escape attackers and things. Like, he's doing that long before the home invaders turn up. And... So she gets to put all that to work. Lang is still excellent. He gets a lot more dialogue in this one, a lot more acting. He's not just the shape looming out of the darkness. He, he gets some, um, some really actual performance stuff to do a lot more than he got in the first one. He's still scary, but this time he's also, I don't want to call him sympathetic because he's not, but he is more complicated and you have, your allegiance is with him a lot more. Well, it yes, your allegiance is with him a lot more than it was in the first one, where your allegiance was obviously for the for the people who were his victims. It's so weird to talk about that character in that sense because he is such a bad person. But yeah. the movie does handle that pretty well and like challenges you in the way that it does that, which is is pretty cool. And God, he's in incredible shape, Stephen Lane. He's almost seventy. Oh, absolutely. Mm. He's almost seventy, and he is like ripped. He could bench press all of us at the same time. Oh, yeah. It's ridiculous. Uh, You get a nice, ambiguous supporting performance by Brendan Sexton III as uh, the leader of the Home Invaders. 
he keeps you guessing as to whether you should really be on his side or not. Uh, and the action is brutal. It's gritty. It's clumsy, which I like. You know, the, these are not, this is not John Wick. This is not James Bond. You know, these are men who are just hitting each other. One of them is fairly old. It, it's just kind of brutal in that sense. The finale goes twisted as well, but not as twisted as the first one. And it does lack the surprise of that first movie. That first movie was just, it felt so fresh and new and interesting. It did, because the whole concept is just brilliant. Mm. And then the twist is gut-wrenching. For me, I walked out of the first one saying, it was incredibly well shot. The twist kind of irked me a lot. Yeah. Just because I felt like it was unnecessary. They don't do those same things in this one. They stay away from that subject matter. You see, I when they announced this sequel, my first response was, why? A, a sequel seemed unnecessary. They've done something entirely different, which is good. They haven't just repeat, re- repeated themselves. We, we will talk about it in... I, we will probably one day do an episode on the first Don't Breathe, but um, my theory with that film is the biggest mistake that they make is that the second and third victims should have been swapped in the order that they went out. Mm. But we can have that conversation then. Mm. Yeah, it's just, there are diminishing returns this time around. It's not as fresh. And so yeah, I guess it's also just not as good at tense direction as Fide Alvarez is. Yeah. It's brilliantly lit though by Pedro Luque. It's uh, got this use of Detroit sort of run-down, almost apocalyptic look with the orange light of streetlights being the source of, of the light. It's, it's, it looks great. And it was filmed during COVID, uh, and, it, and it looks really good. But uh, Roque Banos's score is a little too intrusive for my liking. It is, it is good. I do recommend it to fans of the first one. Uh, and you could also watch it in isolation if you wanted to. But at home, I watched Lost in Translation, it is a dramedy directed by Sofia Coppola, and it is set in an alternate reality where Giovanni Ribisi could be married to Scarlett Johansson. It's about these two lonely Americans in Tokyo. There's this washed-up middle-aged actor named Bob, who's played by Bill Murray, and there's this aimless, discontented young woman named Charlotte, who's played by Scarlett Johansson, who is there with her neglectful husband. And they meet at a hotel, and they form their unlikely friendship. This is really sweet, and it's an emotionally complicated film. It's a slow burn. It took me a little while to get with the rhythm of it. It does take time to warm up, and it is the kind of movie that I like a lot more in retrospect the more time I have to think about it and sit with it. There's a lot of interesting stuff about sort of the language barrier of these two Americans in Tokyo who don't speak Japanese and therefore are pretty lonely and and isolated and take refuge in each other and and that sort of a literalization of their emotional isolation in an interesting way but there's not so much a plot as an hour and a half of character work that might be its problem actually is that there there sometimes is a feeling of aimlessness and, and really what took me a while to warm up to it but the relationship between bob and charlotte is really the whole point I wouldn't call it a romantic relationship, but there is sort of a romantic tension underneath it all. Yeah. Bob is just a really interesting character. This guy who is just sort of middle-aged and is just sort of stuck in this this sort of swamp of not liking his life. And, and Charlotte is trying to figure out 
what the whole point is, like what she's going to do, where she's going to go, you know, what her place is and who she is, that she probably married too young and now she's having problems with her husband. And Murray and Johansson are just outstanding. I mean, this is oh, yeah. this is like a defining Bill Murray performance, really. Like this is the, what cemented him as a viable dramatic actor. Yeah. And, I mean, it's episodic. They explore Tokyo. It, the city looks great. Oh, yeah. It's, it's beautifully shot. It's really well written. Sophia Coppola, she was a punchline for many years after appearing in Godfather 3 as an actress. That The story goes that Francis Ford Coppola had another actress lined up for her part and that actress dropped out, so he chucked his daughter in the role. And she was not good because she's not, not an actress. And so she was a punchline for many years, but, uh, but she's more than redeemed herself as, as a director and a writer in the years since. Definitely. It's a very loose film. It's all about emotion. It's got this bittersweet feel. It's mournful, but it's hopeful at the same time. There, there are a few snatches that I think could have been trimmed for pace. They are still thematically relevant, but I do think it slows the movie down. But yeah, it's, it's a good movie, and, uh, and it's certainly fascinating to see Bill Murray in that mode. I saw another production of Macbeth. I do think it is the first, um, the first time I will have talked about Macbeth on this podcast, but I have seen multiple productions before. This is, of course, a tragedy based on the play by William Shakespeare. This version is directed by Gregory Doran, and it is a TV version of a Royal Shakespeare Company stage production that was being done at the time. Of course, it is about the Scottish nobleman Macbeth, played here by Anthony Sher. He meets witches coming back from war, and they tell him that he will one day be king. And so he and his uh, wife, Lady Macbeth, played by Harriet Walter, get all power-hungry and mad, and they kill King Duncan, played by Joseph O'Connor. And Macbeth assumes the throne, but comes to madness and guilt, and all of the other nobles who hate him, basically, start a rebellion. I've always struggled with Macbeth. I've always been a little bit at a distance from it, I think because of its characters, but also partly because of the productions that I've seen before this point. I don't think any of them have really connected with me. This was the first Shakespeare play I was ever exposed to. This was the one they made a study in high school. Yeah. But the story here is just legendary. I mean, it's always about ambition and guilt and weakness. It's what makes it always resonant. It's what makes Shakespeare resonant. It's is that at the core of it is very universal stuff that he's dealing with. Yeah, Shakespeare always has this wonderful talent at making the story relevant to the audience. There may be stories about the rich and powerful, but he digs into these very human themes of, like you said, ambition, there's ideas of grief. And the best adaptations of Shakespeare work, like we've discussed, nailed that home. These were not plays written for the rich. They may have been commissioned by the rich and wealthy and powerful, but they were written for the people. Yeah, it doesn't matter who you are, what your background is, what your nationality is, or any of that stuff. I mean, it's always dealing with something that's very immediate and human. Yeah, like, I've seen a version of Macbeth set in a Scottish kitchen. I have seen a version of Hamlet set in India. Mm. I have seen a version of Romeo and Juliet where they're gardeners. Yeah. It just, these stories can be set anywhere, and they just Including work. with lions in Africa. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. These are such universal stories, and Macbeth is one of the big ones. This is a little off topic, but um, I've always wanted, like, somewhere, someone like Netflix or, or 
just a company to do like a big, like we're making all of the plays and we're going to do faithful adaptations that are in the language, but we're also going to partner it with a 10 Things I Hate About You style reimagining of the story in another concept. That would be so tight. Yeah. Dual films. My idea for something like this is you get the plays of Shakespeare and hire production teams from countries around the globe and get them to their to do their cultural translation hmm. of this play. Like you could send King Lear to Australia, you could send Macbeth to India, or you could send Romeo Juliet to Japan, Titus Andronicus send that to uh, I don't know it's something like that would be so very interesting I want to see the J-horror version of Titus Andronicus oh <laughs> shit yeah that'd be rad as hell actually this version of Macbeth is wonderfully weak Sher is just outstanding I've seen him in a few Shakespeare things now and he is brilliant Lady Macbeth is just I mean she's an enduring archetype now Shakespeare had good roles for women, comparative to the stuff that was being written at the time, you know. He had a lot of strong, active female characters. He had he had the, you know, passive shrinking violet ones as well, which are not great, but he had a lot of characters who took action and were not cowed by their place in society. Yeah, mm. Shakespeare had female characters that moved the plot. Yeah. They were actually players in the game. Yeah, people who would who were powerful in their own right. Like in Titus Andronica, for example, there's Boudicca. Yeah, Beatrice in My Kiddo About Nothing. Exactly. Lady Macbeth. The writing is, of course, incredible. It's Shakespeare, but it is his shortest play. Here meaning that it is 130 minutes long. <laughs> Dude was writing epics. Yes, but the problem with that is that it, it, you kind of miss that time to breathe, I think. Um, you have the usual really large cast of characters that Shakespeare uses, but not really enough space to explore them all. And there are big jumps in character progression, specifically the madness of the Macbeths, especially towards the end. You start to fast forward through that stuff really quickly. It's jarring. And for me, it, it, it upsets the pace. And we spend, and I think I've identified this as the problem that I've had that's kept me apart from Macbeth for a little while is that we spend so little time with pre-madness Macbeth that mm. I can't really get to root for him when he starts to collapse, you know? No, I totally get that. I I, I totally agree. You sort of see him mad from the get-go, mm. which is not the best if you really want to show the deterioration of the character. Yeah, like, the, the story is a tragedy regardless, but it could have been much more tragic if we had that context. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and and that's that's the length thing. I mean, you spend an hour with Hamlet before he really starts to lose his marbles. Exactly. You know what Shakespeare should have thought of? He should have done a prequel to Macbeth. <laughs> oh god. Yeah, franchise it. Franchise that shit. He already did that with like the War of the Roses stuff. Yeah, dude was the first franchiser. Mm. To be honest, he was writing series after series. It was mainly his histories. Yeah, some of his some of his productions are remakes of older things. Exactly. Yeah, he did sequels, my guys. It's like, do you know how rare it is to find a sequel for a theater piece? So deeply rare. Do you have a favorite soliloquy from Macbeth? I mean, I know it's a cliche. It's it is as Jean would put it, the basic answer, but the stage. Thing. Yeah, I love that because I have. That's my 
that's perhaps my second favorite soliloquy from Shakespeare. I have heard several versions. A lot of them tend to do it too crazy. Cher doesn't. He do, he does it brilliantly. He's like really just sort of shell shock. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow. A poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. This is a moment of clarity, actually. Hmm. And that important line before the tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow is she should have died hereafter, tomorrow. And tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day. My my mother has always bastardized a line from this play. She when when we're leaving to go somewhere or something like that, she would say, On on Macduff, which is not the actual line, but it is a bastardized version of the line. And I and I said to her finally, after actually getting engaged with Shakespeare, I said, You realise that um that is that is from Macbeth when Macbeth is like challenging Macduff to a duel to the death. And after, in, during which he is violently killed. Yeah. Hmm. I've always liked Macbeth because it's it's just pure revenge storytelling. You got the the Macduff side of things, which I've always found really engaging. I've seen a stage production of Macbeth. I believe it was Richard Attenborough who directed it. I think we've mentioned this to you before, but I don't know if we've done it on. Yeah, I think you've mentioned it on the podcast. We have. But yeah. The characters were great. The stage was amazing, but you know they were marketing it as Game of Thrones before Game of Thrones. It's not the same thing. The politics of it are backburner to the emotion. I get that, but you sort of have to trick people into seeing Shakespeare now. Yeah, it was a great production. Don't get me wrong. And this is a really great production as well. I mean, as I said, it's based on the on the version that was being done with Cher and Walters. Uh, on the stage at the time. and Royal um, Shakespeare Company. It's in the name. They know their shit. And this is just wonderfully filmed. It's all filmed indoors at the Roundhouse Theatre. There's no audience. And it's cut like a film, so they can get in close and, and things like that. It's like that Hamilton on Disney+. Plus. Yeah. No, not really, because, like, they've actually taken out all the seats, and so they're using the whole space rather than just oh. the stage. Oh, that's rare as hell. Yeah. And they will go, like into other areas of the theatres as well, so they're not always in the round. I need to see this. But it's got some really striking shot composition. It's a minimalist set with minimal use of props, but just an outstanding use of light and shadow and, like, backlight, so people being shot from behind in silhouette and stuff. It looks really good. I, I needed to finish off there, but, like, we were we were talking about the problem with getting people to see Shakespeare in this day and age. And it's the thing that I have thought ever since I started at a university because 
when I studied at uni, the reason I got into Shakespeare was because I studied it at uni. And to do that, rather than buy the book of the play, I bought copies of the recordings of the stage plays. Exactly. And I've always thought that, like, the profound mistake that is made in the teaching of Shakespeare is that they make you read the script instead of watch exactly. the play. And I mean, I get that it's hard. I get that if you're a high school teacher and you're teaching Hamlet, that's a four and a half hour production, <laughs> you know? How do you justify to the people running the curriculum spending at least five lessons screening that for the kids? I agree. They're played. They're not meant to be read. Exactly. Like, it's so important, I think, to actually see them perform, to really understand what they are. I actually made my mother watch a Shakespeare film, which she did not want to do. But I was like, actually, just come and actually see it. Because I know that you studied in high school and you don't like it. But actually see it performed. And she watched the movie and she really liked the movie. I watched, I made her watch the Kenneth Branagh Much Ado About Nothing. And she was like, yeah, that's not nearly as sort of like ruffled collar and uptight as the perception of it is. Exactly. Like the mistake people make is thinking that they look at the language used and they see it and go, oh, this is complicated. But the fact is, when you hear it performed by people who know what they're doing, like in Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet, like... That version of Much Ado About Nothing, like, apparently this version of Macbeth that you're talking about. When you hear it done by actors who know what they're doing, by a team who has dug into it and analyzed it, it's incredible. Because you get the meaning of the words that might have confused you on page. I mean, the thing that I've always said when trying to explain this to people who are unfamiliar with Shakespeare is, um, if you were doing film studies and you were studying Star Wars, you wouldn't hand someone the script to Star Wars and then, you know, dust your hands off and say, well, I think that you've gotten everything you could possibly get from that. Yeah, you know exactly. Anyways, I, I, think also- an, I actually do think an important part of teaching Shakespeare is also getting the kids to perform it. Hmm. Uh, because when you're learning a monologue from Shakespeare, like John and I did in drama class in high school, you start to understand it so much more. And if in English class, you give kids short sequences to learn, they'll dig into it and understand it. Because kids can understand that. Because this is universal storytelling. They've seen these stories told in other movies before. They know what the story is. But engaging them with that language is not only going to be important for their english language development but also how they recognize that these are stories for them and not for the stuffy shirt people in the city i mean that was that was like the 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 great thing that they did with 10 things i hate about you and i wish that they had continued that in that we'd gotten more of those more of those Taking the stories and modernizing them like that. Anyways, yeah, like, I can uh, see that. She's, part, she's that I can see that John is that trying team. to move us on. <laughs> but anyway, thank you everybody for listening to our podcast within a podcast. Shake it up, Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll be mo- we'll be moving on. Thank you. We spent at least ten minutes on that. Anyways, I I pivoted wildly then to watching Love Actually, <laughs> which is a romantic comedy directed by Richard Curtis. One hundred percent less murder. It is about half the actors in Britain experiencing love stories in the lead up to Christmas. <laughs> yep. It's really charming and fun. I'd never seen it before. It's sweet and it's saccharine and sometimes that can be a bit much, but it's just nice. And 
not to sound like an old man, but they don't make movies like this anymore. They don't. We ki- we millennials killed the romantic comedy. We we did. We murdered it. Yeah. We are a too cynical and ironic society now for the romantic comedy to survive. Do you know what I think the two movies that sealed the deal on the romantic comedy were? It's like those two dueling friends with benefits movies. Ah, uh, yeah. Inexplicably, one starring Ashton Kutcher and the other starring Mila Kunis, who were friends at the time and then became husband and wife a few like, years it's, later. It's, it's those two movies that sealed the deal on it because they were coming in with that that cynicism to it. I think it happened earlier. I think I think when Charlie Kaufman was like, hmm, I want to make Eternal Sunshine of a Spotless Mind. Eternal Sunshine of a Spotless Mind and 500 Days of Summer basically put the stake through the heart. Yes, Love is Dead. We killed it. But uh, Love Actually is is a really fun film. It's, it's all of these different episodes with all of these different... Um, actors in them all woven together and they intersect at points all of these different little stories there's some really sweet ones but some of them are spiked with melancholy as well and they tend to be the best ones there is one about a stepfather who is caring for his young son after his wife has died and they're trying to connect while the son is getting his first crush on a girl at school there's one in which a long-time married couple sort of hit the rocks after he begins to consider an affair with a woman at his office. And, I mean, it's that stuff that sort of... It, it, it is the sour to the sweet that makes it all work in, in the broader things. Some of the goofier ones are just, like, cutaway gags. There are a few, like, really shallow stories that are just there to cut back to every now and again <laughs> to be absurd, which is fun. Like, there's this idiot abroad who is travelling to America because he thinks that his accent will make him irresistible to women. And, of course... The joke is he gets there and it does. <laughs> There's other ones like cutting back to uh, to stand-ins on a movie. You know, the, the stand-ins were brought in before the actors get there to do the lighting setups and everything. And But they're stand-ins during like a really graphic sex scene. So they've got to mime out all of these like really gra- <laughs> graphic sexual acts while entirely naked. But at the time they start like getting really awkward, like flirting with each other and not knowing what to say to each other while at the same time miming out these these incredibly... I mean, this certainly what got the movie an R rating in America. Of course, we didn't care here. It's M in Australia. But Martin Freeman is one of them. I have to mention Bill Nye, which is just a magnificent performance. It's sort of the thing that brought Bill Nye into like the mainstream awareness area. Um, have you guys seen clips of his performance in this? No. No, I have not. Oh, he is playing an old sort of Mick Jagger-esque washed-up rock star. Brilliant. How do you think the new record compares to your old classic stuff? Oh, come on, Mikey. You know as well as I do, the record's crap. (laughs) But wouldn't it be great if number one this Christmas wasn't some smug teenager but an old ex-heroin addict searching for a comeback at any price? All those young popsters come Christmas Day, they'll be stretched out naked with a cute bird balancing on their balls and I'll be stuck in some dingy flat with my manager, Joe, ugliest man in the world, fucking miserable because our fucking gamble didn't pay off. So if you believe in Father Christmas, children, like your Uncle Billy does, by my festering turd of a record. (laughs) 
He's just the greatest, isn't he? Yeah, it is a magnificent Bill Nye performance. And the whole cast really is just incredible as well. I mean, you've got Nye, but you've also got Emma Thompson, Alan Rickman, Hugh Grant, Colin Firth, Kira Knightley, Andrew Lincoln, Chiwetel Ejiofor, Thomas Brody Sangster, Laura Linney, Rowan Atkinson, Martin Freeman, Billy Bob Thornton. It's very funny. It's rude, too. There's a lot of nudity. There's a lot of swearing. And it has a great licensed soundtrack. It was just a refreshing change of pace for me. After five Underworld movies. (laughs) Yeah. Six cannibal movies a few weeks back, you know. It's been a while since I've had something to take the edge off like this. And it braced me for the cat in the hat, so there's that. But if you if you would like to check this out in Australia, it's available on Prime Video, Binge, Foxtel Now, and Stan. Since you guys love Christmas movies, I think it would be a good one to watch in the lead-up to Christmas this year. Fair enough. I watched The Haunted Mansion, a family fantasy movie directed by Rob Minkoff. It follows this realtor couple, Jim and Sarah Evers. They're played by Eddie Murphy and Marsha Thomason. They're contacted to come and represent an old mansion, put it on the market, and they take their kids on the way out of town to go and see it. But they're flooded in there overnight. And uh, the guy that owns the place, Master Gracie, played by Nathaniel Parker, he's acting like he knows Sarah, but she doesn't know him. You've got this creepy butler in the background lurking about the place named Ramsley. He's played by Terrence Stamp. But they're all ghosts, it turns out. This is another one that I really liked as a kid, but similarly to The Cat in the Hat, it didn't really hold up for me upon a rewatch. The narrative has some real darkness in it. It's the only hanging in a children's film that I can recall. Oh, yeah. It sets that tone straight up. Mm. Well, I mean, The Haunted Mansion, the ride, is pretty grim if you look at it. It plays with stereotypes of the genre, but I wouldn't call it really a parody. No. It's more genuine than that. It's... It's yeah. got this sort of lost, lost love plot. Yeah. That Sarah is sort of the reincarnated lost love of Master Gracie. And it has this unspoken racial element to it as well that affects the whole thing. It, it's interesting that they're tackling those kinds of themes here. And the script is decent. There's a nice enough blend of humour for all of the different ages that will be watching the thing. Eddie Murphy is really doing his, his thing here, his fast-talking act. It's such a great juxtaposition when you put him up against Terence Stamp, who's doing the very sort of slow, laconic, you know, British butler voice. It drags on, though. The obstacles that are raised are largely uninteresting, and they try and shoehorn in these lessons for the children, which I don't think work. Thomason is utterly wasted as the wife in this thing. She needed much more to do. The the crypt scene with all the zombies... That scene used to freak me out when I was really little. Oh yeah, there's there's plenty in this movie that could freak you out. I mean, there's a portal to hell that opens up in the end. Like a legitimate portal to hell! Again, this is a Disney film. I do agree that it tends to drag a little bit with the sort of quest element, but part of that is them trying to fit in all of these other references to the ride. They're trying to fit in... They're singing busts, they're trying to fit in some of the ghosts. Yeah, it's available for streaming on Disney+, Plus. if anyone's interested. I have a great effect for it. I do too. Lastly this week, I saw Timeline. It's a science fiction adventure film directed by Richard Donner. It's based on the Michael Crichton book of the same name. And it is about this archaeology team that includes Chris Johnston, played by Paul Walker. They are transported to 1357 France by a wormhole they discover. And they're there to track down Billy Connolly, who, I kid you not, 
is playing Paul Walker's dad. <laughs> what? Yeah. That does not make any sense. He got lost in the wormhole before and has been stranded in there. And so they're working with the company who found the wormhole to go back themselves and, and bring him back. So does Billy Connolly put on an American accent? Not remotely, no. Paul Walker doesn't put on any kind of accent? Not at all. What the fuck are they doing? Mm. But they only have a small window to find Billy Connolly and bring him back, and, and it's during the very end of the Hundred Years' War between the French and the and the British, uh, so they've got to navigate that and find a way back home. It's just a generic time travel story, really. We've seen this so many times before, that whole question of can you change history, the whole falling for the person who is doomed to die in history, even the whole leaving clues to lead you back in time in the first place. I mean, this is stuff that we have seen many, many times before, done better elsewhere. And it feels like kind of an odd point to pop in at this little, like, chapter at the end of the Hundred Years' War. It's not something with some huge cultural cachet. No, in fact, a lot of people forget that period in history. Yeah. Paul Walker's presence, even separate from the fact that, um, that he's supposed to be Billy Connolly's son, is comical. He's got that... He got better as an actor as he got more experience, but at this point he was still in that sort of California drawl kind of part where he seems like he should really be selling surfboards on a Los Angeles beachfront. He was still at the point where he was letting his natural charm carry the role. But the problem is, is then you chuck him back in 1357 uh, France and he just, it, it's just so jarring for him to be anywhere near that, that it becomes funny unintentionally. See, Billy Connolly makes sense. He's got that strong accent. He could just be someone who's from the UK coming to Paris. But America didn't exist yet. They have some romance stuff going on. I mean, Chris is falling in love with the one of his colleagues from the archaeology team, and you get, you get another character played by Gerard Butler who falls in love with the historical figure who's doomed to die. Neither romance is particularly believable, though. Neither is particularly interesting. I'm a lot more interested in what's going on in the present, that there's this cutthroat scientist played by David Thewlis who's giving the best performance in the movie, and he uh, wants to exploit this wormhole, but also things have gone wrong, and he's, like, trying to cover his ass. More Michael Sheen, too. It's been a weirdly Sheen-heavy huh. couple of weeks here. Huh. Michael Sheen turning up as one of the English characters back during the Hundred Years' War is a waste for him here, though. It does look decent, however, but I can't really recommend it. And that's me done for the week. What about you guys? What have you been watching? So, first, we watched the first episode of Gotham. This is a series John and I had already watched and finished. I just felt like popping back into the series, because I quite like it. Because it went on sale on iTunes, and there's an extended pilot episode, so we wanted to see what they added, if it's had any different vibes to it. Gotham is to Batman what Smallville is for Superman. Yeah. Except, like, so much darker. Oh! Oh, so, so much darker. But you kind of expect that when it comes to Batman. Mm. You never see Clark Kent punch a guy's face off. No. But, whereas Smallville focuses pretty much solely on Clark Kent and Lex Luthor and how they develop into who they become, Gotham is a much more... It's much more focused on the development of the city on the whole. We see how the city changes from a place run by organized crime to a place overrun by, as 
the organized crime mobsters would refer to them as freaks. Really looking at... It's essentially the story you'd find in something like The Long Halloween or The Dark Knight. So we look at this story of the fall of Gotham through the prism of three characters. We see it through the eyes of a young 10-year-old Bruce Wayne as he's growing up into the person who will eventually leave Gotham and return as the Batman. We see it through the eyes of Jim Gordon as he starts as a detective who's come back from the war and see how he starts to fall alongside the city and how the corruption of not only the powerful but also the police can affect him and how it challenges him to retain his principles while also trying to save people. We see it also through the eyes of Oswald Cobblepot, the Penguin, as he starts from lowly Umbrella Boy to becoming the crime lord that we all know and love. The first season is rather textbook police procedural with a much darker tone. They make no bones about the corruption inherent in the GCPD. It is a deeply corrupt institution that... There's only, like, one good cop, and that's Gordon. But even then, he starts to get darker and darker, more and more corrupt. The first season is rather standard in that regard. Season two, everything goes batshit in the best possible way. Yeah. You start to see the city lose its mind at an accelerated rate. So eventually we get introduced to characters like Firefly, Mr. Freeze. Jerome Valeska. Who's meant to be, like, this proto-Joker. We get introduced to concepts like the Court of Owls later on, the League of Shadows, that sort of stuff. Rachel Ghoul. Bane, eventually in the final season. In the final batshit insane season. Yes. Like, we see the development of all these different villains, and how each of them is integral in some way to the fall of the city and eventual rise of the Batman. The cast in here is incredible. The young boy, David Mazuz, they get to play Bruce Wayne. You see him grow as an actor over the course of the five seasons. And it's a wonderful development. You also see the development of Carmen Bindikova as Selina Kyle. How she develops into Catwoman. Ben McKenzie as Detective Gordon, eventually to become Commissioner Gordon. Robin Lord Taylor is exceptional as Penguin. Uh, I also have to give credit to Corey Michael Smith as Edward Nigma, who eventually becomes the Riddler, and the relationship that the, the characters of Penguin and Riddler eventually develop. It is fascinating and so much fun. I really like this series. As soon as it started going really batshit is when I started paying a lot of attention to what the show was trying to do. You can find seasons two to five on Netflix in Australia. Season one, unfortunately, you can't scream anywhere for some inane contractual reason or some such. Uh, you can also find it on iTunes or wherever you purchase TV shows. We've also watched a couple of other things. Now, I have subscribed to a streaming service called Dropout, which is essentially the home of a lot of College Humor stuff now. College Humor being a really old school web video production company from way back near the start of YouTube's inception. They have many different programs on Dropout. Some of them are game shows. Some of them are D&D Actual Play stuff. The D&D Actual Play series that John and I have been watching is called Dimension 20, where each season has a different cast, different characters, 
but the season that John and I have been watching is called The Unsleeping City, which is set in New York, but it's New York with magical fantasy elements integrated into it, sort of like as a layer above normal New York life, because New York is one of those sort of like mythical cities. It's like New York is essence of city, in a sense. The Dungeon Master for Dimension 20 in all but one of the seasons is a guy called Brennan Lee Mulligan, who Lawson would recognize from some of the college humor stuff that he's seen. He's the the angry manic CEO in all of those bits that they do. And he's a fantastic improviser, and in Dimension 20 it shows. Because you have to roll with the punches. Dungeons & Dragons is one of those games where you can keep things as structured as as you possibly can, but that's not the point of it. You gotta let the dice tell the story. And Brinley Mulligan has been playing D&D since his childhood, so he is so deeply steeped in how the game works, its mechanics. He's an incredibly clever guy, and Unsleeping City feels like Sandman-esque or that sort of thing. It's like He has a lot to say about how important a city like New York is and what a city like New York means in a lot of ways. Um, him being a born and bred New Yorker himself has a great passion for the city. Some of the players that they have in Unsleeping City are the main cast for a lot of Dimension 20. Folks like Javon Thompson, who plays old school Broadway actress Misty Moore, who has like this bard slash fairy class going on. Ali Beardsley, they play a character called Pete, who is this like wild magic sorcerer who has recently come into his magic. Lou Wilson plays uh, Kingston Brown. He's a working nurse, but he also is what is referred referred to as the Vox Populi, voice of the city. So he's like this cleric kind of character with this real deep connection to the operation of New York. All of the cast are extremely great role players. And one of the important things, you could engage with Dimension 20 as a podcast, but I would highly recommend engaging with it in a visual sense. They have like, I think the entire first season of another one of the, you know, storylines that they have called Fantasy High, which is like, what if D&D archetypes were in a John Hughes high school thing? But they have these great little miniatures and models for when they're doing the combat sections of D&D, and those are always incredible. I have to give a real shout out to the production team for Dimension 20. I don't know. Brennan Lee Mulligan is like the best dungeon master I've seen in anything. He's just so clever and so great with the rules and stuff. It's a long time commitment to get into stuff like Dimension 20. And you really do need a dropout subscription to get the whole sort of energy from it. Dimension 20 is a great series. It's like anthology as well. There are many different storylines and different worlds and stuff, which is really cool. So if there's one series you don't, you're not too interested in, they've probably got another storyline that you might find more interesting. There's pirates. There's another story called Escape from the Blood Keep, which is essentially what if you got Lord of the Rings but saw it from the villain's perspective as they try to hunt down the hobbits. That's a great season too. Another series we have watched on Dropout is called Game Changer, which is hosted by Dropout CEO Sam Reich, where the game changes every show, and the players don't know what the rules are, 
when the game starts. They have to figure it out as the game is going on. This is a great idea for a game show. It's always keeping not only the audience, but the contestants on their toes. One of the best examples of it was he would put up a phrase and the contestants each had to make the different sound of what the phrase or picture meant, but they didn't know that at the beginning, so they thought they were just answering questions. I'm not doing it justice by explaining it, but it is really funny and really clever, and you can see that there's a lot of good production value put into it. Dropout, which is sort of like what remains of Coliseum, really does care about what they're creating. Yeah, I'm just actually really impressed by a lot of the production value around the Dropout stuff in general. They put in a hell of a lot of effort, and it's really commendable because early to mid last year, the company that had owned College Humor let them go, and a lot of the cast lost their jobs. So Dropout was CEO Sam Reich's solution to keeping these people hired, and it's really commendable effort. I'm happy to have a subscription for Dropout because... The stuff they bring out onto the service is just really, really good. Really high quality stuff. I think that's all we have for uh, what we've been watching this week. Now we will play for you the trailer to The Cat in the Hat. There's no doubt about that. Oh, God. Hi, Mrs. Kwan. Hi. Thanks for babysitting on such short notice. I'll be back in a couple of hours. Conrad, Sally... Remember the rules. No playing ball in the house, no fighting, no answering the phone, city morgue. And absolutely no one sets foot in the living room or else. Hit me! This holiday season. What was that? Universal Pictures, DreamWorks Pictures, and Imagine Entertainment. Invite you to the ultimate house party. Let's get this party started. From Brian Grazer, the producer of The Grinch. Mike Myers. This cat is currently in violation of 17 of your mother's rules. The Cat in the Hat. Homona, homona, homona. Who is this? That's my mom. Awkward. That was the trailer for The Cat in the Hat. It is, in theory, a comedy film directed by Bo Welch, and it is based on the children's picture book of the same name by Dr. Seuss. It follows the story of two children, a brother and sister. Conrad, played by Spencer Breslin, is a troublemaker, constantly causing problems and getting into mischief, while Sally, played by Dakota Fanning, is a bossy little sycophant whose hyper-controlling nature has alienated her from all her friends. Their single mother, Kelly Preston plays her, is struggling with them, Conrad in particular, and today is one of special importance. She's hosting a company get-together in the evening, which will be attended by her germophobic boss, Mr. Humberflube, played by Sean Hayes, who has threatened to fire her if all does not go well. Off to work, she leaves the children in the care of the narcoleptic Mrs. Kwan, played by Amy Hill, who promptly falls asleep and therefore does not witness the arrival of the cat in the hat, played by Mike Myers, a horrifying eldritch creature with the ability to manipulate the fabric 
of time and space, who has a deranged plan to teach the children a vague and poorly thought-through life lesson. The day goes wild pretty quickly, and the house is shortly ruined to the children's dismay. To make matters worse, the mess is noticed by next-door neighbour Quinn, played by Alec Baldwin, who, if he wasn't so sleazy, would be the easiest character to root for in the whole film. He's dating the kid's mum, and is eager to convince her to ship Conrad off to military school, being as annoyed by him as I am. And so, when he realises what they've done to the house, he doesn't notice the six-foot-tall talking cat, he rushes to accurately report what her unruly offspring have done. It's up to Conrad, Sally, and the cat to stop Quinn, clean up the house before their mother gets home, and gaslight her into thinking her boyfriend is mentally ill, and that they have not done what they absolutely did. So, before we get too deep into this, why don't we each go around and give our timed 30-second thoughts of the cat in the hat? Why don't you start us off, Sean? Are you ready? Yes. Alright. Three, two, one, go. So this is a personal favourite of mine from my childhood. I can perfectly understand how it's not everyone's cup of tea. I can understand that, and I respect your opinion. However, this movie holds such a deep place in my heart and the formation of my sense of humor that there will always be parts of this movie that appeal to me. I think there are some issues in terms of pace and character, but the production design cannot be understated yeah that makes a lot of sense jean you are the cat in the hat of this podcast i i am the sally because i am bossy but ultimately correct uh and i think that harley is mrs kwan <laughs> why is harley mrs kwan i don't know i do get a kick out of watching Paul he doesn't and... really suit spencer breslin's character what's his name conrad conrad Convex. i mean really if Concrete. we were going to attack this from a logical standpoint then i am the cat in the hat of this podcast being that i have dragged you into this whole endeavor to submit you to the circus that I am the carnival barker for. Yeah. Which would then make it much easier that Jean is Conrad and Harley is Sally. But anyway. Yeah. You ready, Harley? Yep. Three, two, one, go. Much like Jean, I have a huge amount of affection for this film. It was super important to the development of even my sense of humour, which is oftentimes less chaotic than Jean's, but still can be stupid sometimes. I think the production design is honestly fantastic. It's some of the most seamless production design I've seen. It looks wonderful. I think I understand where you're coming from, Lawson, but it's a kid's film, and we gotta let it be that. Alright, you got me queued up? Yes. Three, two, one, go. I used to like this movie. I don't anymore upon this rewatch. I reject the idea that we've got to give it a pass for being a kid's movie. I think that this has problems that that I disagree should get a pass for being a kid's movie. But I also, I think that the, the humour is just too scattershot. I think that the performances are too hit and miss. I disagree about the production design. I think it looks ugly as sin, but we can get into that. Uh, I am going to try to keep this as measured as possible. I don't just want to be taking shots at Cat in the Hat the whole way through. Because, I mean, if, if if you do end up just ragging on the movie, you got to think about it. you got to leave your body and look down at your own life and say, is this what I've come to? Oh, sure. You know, don't, don't yuck someone else's yum. If you like this movie, then, you know, all the more power yeah. to you in this list. No, no, it, more just like, I'm spending my energy getting angry about a stupid little movie. 
kind you of know, thing. this cold, heartless world that we live in, where everything looks like it's falling apart. You know, you take take the pleasure where you can get it, and if that's exactly the live action Cat in the Hat film, then go and for it. If your joy comes from a consciously ironic but subconsciously unironic nostalgia trip. This we need to repeat this episode. We need to watch this movie and do it again. But when we're in our seventies or eighties, because I want to see if you you've, if you guys mature at all beyond this. <laughs> oh. I don't see that happening. No, dude, I don't see that happening. Wilson, the, I am looking at the this. cat chopping off his tail. The pacing of that joke is so incredible to me that it will never not make me laugh. Lawson, this might not be something you think, but I'm actually going to be discussing this movie through a mature lens today. Oh, it's not you I was worried about, Harley. (laughs) I have actual questions and discussion about the lore presented here that mm-hmm. I really I'm want to get familiar with some of your theories, yes. But let's start off with the production history. It's uh, DreamWorks bought the rights to adapt the book in 1997. It had previously been adapted twice, once as an animated TV special in 1971, and also as a nine-minute animated short film in the Soviet Union, where it was renamed The Cat in the Cap. <laughs> I, I need to see that. I just need to see that Comrade one. Conrad. Comrade Conrad. Comrade Sally, we must teach you how to have proper Soviet state-sanctioned fun. Huzzah! Now it's time for your Soviet state-sanctioned fun hour. When it is done, you return to the field from whence you came. (laughs) We go back and we do more work. Development really kicked off after The Grinch was so successful, though. The Jim Carrey live-action version of The Grinch. Producer Brian Grazer recruited this poor bastard, Bo Welch, to direct the thing. He (laughs) was mostly, and I I say that unironically, because he was mostly a production designer and a really good one. He is the production designer on Beetlejuice, Batman Returns, Men in Black, Ghostbusters 2, and the first Thor movie. Uh, And this was his directorial debut. He had only... And he did production design for the most recent series of unfortunate events that he directed five episodes, I believe. Yes, he directed a few episodes of a series of unfortunate events. That's the only thing that he has directed since this movie. Um, At least this movie didn't knowing to him. But it... It even hurt his production designing career. He made this movie in 2003. He couldn't get another job as a production designer until Space Chimps in 2008. And that shit was animated. Yep. Randy Newman wrote songs for the film in its original, when they were developing it. it. They were cut because, to quote the Chicago Tribune, they were inferior. And so instead they hired his cousin, David Newman, to write the score instead. It's a good score. Mm. Tim Allen was originally cast as the Cat in the Hat. Uh, he was scared of the cat as a child, and he planned to bring that element to it. I've got a quote here from Alan when he was still attacked. My dream is to give it the edge that scared me. Like Alien, we'll see very little of the cat. He's a human being who turns into the cat, like a werewolf or vampire, as he gets more and more frustrated trying to deal with these children. I can tell you right now, that's the worst timeline. Hey, Tim, even if you just look at the original book, that is simply not the case. He's a giant cat in the book. He comes in, causes chaos, doesn't fuck around and try to be like, oh, here's a lesson. He causes a mess, and then he pisses off. Let's and not... then he comes back a month later. Let's not pick and choose, you know about what we get really upset about the idea of changing from the book, Sean, because there's a lot in this movie that's not in the book. But script rewrites delayed the film, 
and Alan was already committed to the Santa Claus 2. So he was forced to drop out, therefore dodging that bullet. Uh, enter Mike Myers. Yeah, yeah, dodging that bullet and stepping in front of another, just kind of Christmas candy cane colored bullet. He dodged bullet. the bullet only to meet it when it curved around and hit him in the back when the Santa Claus 3 came out. Enter Mike Myers with a gun to his head. Because you see, yeah. he had been making a Sprockets movie with Universal. This is the name of a series of recurring sketches on Saturday Night Live when he was a regular on that. It, he, it was his character of Dieter that was the main character of those sketches. And they were trying to make a movie off of that, which they'd done before with, you know, Wayne's World to great success. But this project was apparently a nightmare. They were There were over a dozen drafts written many delays and eventually Myers walked away from it and Universal and Imagine Entertainment sued him for it. Uh, there were two lawsuits actually from each company, one from each company. Combined they were suing him for about $35 million and Myers countersued for $20 million. I have a quote here from Entertainment Weekly. Imagine describes Myers 37 as egomaniacal, irresponsible and selfish and in its most inflammatory and mysterious charge, accuses Myers of inexcusable bigotry. The Austin Powers star is swinging back, claiming the studio placed short-sightedness and greed above artistic integrity, and further insisted he was emotionally traumatised by the, quote, stalker-esque, thug-like, outrageous and reckless conduct of the Universal rep who served Myers with the lawsuit as he and his wife, Robin Roseanne, were returning to their L.A. home. Myers also paints a menacing portrait of former Happy Days nerd Ron Harwood, alleging the Imagine co-chair threatened Myers by saying, it's going to get ugly if Myers didn't commit to the current script. An out-of-court settlement was reached. Everyone dropped their lawsuit in exchange for Myers being in the cat and a half. It should be noted that the producer, Brian Grazer, disputes this version of events, but I don't believe him because it is in too many other places for me to, to believe that, that this was a coincidence. Yeah. There are a few little problems while they were preparing to shoot. Some of the giant props were stolen, vandalized, and left in a dumpster in Pamano, California prior to shooting. Perhaps it was Myers. For the neighborhoods, they built that, that neighborhood of houses. The downtown was a street in Pomona that was dressed to look like that. And the shop owners liked that color scheme so much that they kept it. And it still looks like that. Horrific. There was so much LA smog, though, that the sky had to be digitally replaced to get it to look blue. I mean, it makes more sense for the aesthetic they're going for, at any mm. rate. Myers was reportedly very difficult on this movie. Welch denies it, but there were multiple reports at the time that he was directing the other actors. And he had been getting a reputation, both before and after. A quote here from Entertainment Weekly in 2008. Since early in his career, the actor has been tagged with a reputation for being difficult to work with, moody, controlling, and arrogant. That description could, of course, fit many actors and filmmakers, but the degree of enmity directed toward Myers by some who've worked with him, even years after the fact, is rare. Says one executive who has had a rocky relationship with Myers, I honestly root against him. Later in the same piece, I'm again quoting, Directing her first studio film, Penelope Spheris found herself struggling to prop up Myers' often dark moods. One day, infuriated that there was no margarine for his bagel, only butter, Myers, who, according to several sources, said he suffered from hyperglycemia, stormed off the set. Myers' rep denies he has hyperglycemia. He was emotionally needy and got more difficult as the shoot went on, Spheris says. 
You should have heard him bitching when I was trying to do that Bohemian Rhapsody scene. This is Wayne's World, by the way. I can't move my neck like that. Why do we have to do this so many times? No one is going to laugh at that. To manage Maya's moods, Spheris put her daughter in charge of making sure he had whatever snack he needed at any given moment. To this day, I have this image of her sitting on this little cooler, looking at me like, Mum, I fucking hate you. That attitude was apparently present in Cat in the Hat. Amy Hill, who played Mrs. Kwan, was quoted in 2016. The Cat in the Hat was with Mike Myers, who, if I saw him today, I don't think he'd even remember who I was. He is like a little hermit. He would come in and, I guess, be in hair and makeup. We would wait. I'd be there at the crack of dawn waiting. We would all be waiting for Mike Myers to come. He had his handlers dress his trailer, and his area was all covered with tenting because he didn't want anybody seeing him. It was so weird. It was just the worst. It was like I was there forever, and my daughter was two and a half, and I felt like I was missing her first everything. I was miserable. I just thought it was really rude for him to not take all of us into consideration. And the director was really lovely, but it was his first time directing, and he deferred to Mike so much. Mike would do a take, and then he'd go over and look at the monitors, and then he'd talk to the director, and then we'd do another take. It was just a horrible, nightmarish experience. I don't think he got to know anybody. He'd just be with his people and walk away. People would come, and then he'd stand there. There was a guy who held his chocolates in a little Tupperware. Whenever he needed chocolate, he'd come running over and give him a chocolate. That's what divas are like, I guess. Or people who need therapy. <laughs> the raunchy humour was the subject of a lot of attention at the time of the film's release. Welch was quoted as saying that he thought it was shocking the film got a PG rating unedited. He says that the dirty hoe joke was a particular point of contention among the cast and crew, but Myers insisted on it. Welch actually had a bet going as to whether the MPAA would let it pass. A sequel was planned based on The Cat in the Hat Comes Back, but it was cancelled after poor box office returns, and Dr. Seuss's widow saw this movie and quickly refused to ever allow live-action adaptation of any more of Seuss's stories. They have all been animated since. It opened in America on November the 21st, 2003, distributed there by Universal. Its widest release was in 3,467 theatres. It opened number one against Gothica. It underperformed financially, though. It made $134 million on a $109 million budget, when, which, when you factor in unreported costs like marketing and distribution, means it probably didn't make its money back. It was, however, the 44th highest-grossing film of 2003. It came out on April the 1st, 2004, in Australia, because it is an elaborate joke on the paying audience. It opened number two against Scooby-Doo 2, Monsters Unleashed, but that wasn't what was in first place that week. There was instead 51st Dates that was in first place, which was in its second week. Its widest release here was in 295 theatres. And to give you an image of just how sour the tone on this movie had turned at this point, months after its initial release in the US, we've talked before about how, you know, these kinds, these like bigger movies tend to make four to six million dollars in Australia at this point in time. You know, these are the numbers that I tend to report in this section. The Cat in the Hat made $105,645 in Australia. It was critically reviled. It has a 9% Rotten Tomatoes rating. The consensus reads, filled with double entendres and potty humor, this cat falls flat. It also has a B minus cinema score. It was nominated for a few awards. I'm going to call out four different awards ceremonies here. There were a few genuine nominations that it got from places like the Kids' Choice Awards, where it was nominated 
for Favourite Movie Actor for Mike Myers, and it was also nominated at the Teen Choice Awards for Choice Movie Hissy Fit for Sean Hayes as Mr. Humberflube. But most of the awards that it got nominated for and won were the awards for bad movies. At the Razzies, it won Worst Excuse for an Actual Movie. It was nominated for Worst Picture. It was nominated for Worst Actor for Mike Myers. Alec Baldwin was nominated for Worst Supporting Actor. Kelly Preston was nominated for Worst Supporting Actress. It was nominated for Worst Screen Couple for Mike Myers and either Thing 1 or Thing 2. Bo Welch was nominated for Worst Director and Screenplay was nominated for Worst Screenplay. Later on, when they did their uh, retrospect stuff they nominated well mike myers was nominated for being the worst actor of the first decade of the 21st century on the basis of him being nominated for worst actor four time and winner two times uh including this film and it was also nominated at their anniversary their 25th anniversary special of being the worst comedy of the first 25 years of the razzies it was nominated for a bunch of stuff at the stinkers bad movies awards as well it was the winner of the worst screen- screenplay for a film grossing more than $100 million using Hollywood math. It was the winner of worst picture. It was the winner of the most annoying non-human character for The Cat in the Hat. It was the nominee for worst supporting actor Alec Baldwin, worst fake accent for Mike Myers, worst sense of direction for Bo Welch, worst actor for Mike Myers, most painfully unfunny comedy, worst song for Fun Fun Fun, Again, another nominee for most annoying non-human character for Thing 1 and Thing 2. As much as I have a problem for this with this movie, this extra bit seems really weird. Spencer Breslin won the first time they ever gave out this award. It only lasted for two more ceremonies after this. But he, he won the Spencer Breslin Award for Worst Performance by a Child. That's, that's a bit... I think that's, that's uncalled that's for. That's targeted and mean. Yeah. To take a swing at a child like that, especially a child. But the fact that they named it after him seems like just the extra, like, twist of the knife. Dakota Fanning was also nominated for this same award. Spencer Breslin uh, ended up winning how it again. Much would it, how much would it have stung if in the inaugural start of the Spencer Breslin Award for Worst Child Actor, she got it and not him? I would, personally, if it was stamped off to me, I'd be insulted if I didn't get the first one, to be completely honest. Oh, yeah, If they're going to go to the effort to make it, I'd best be the first one to win. Okay, so there were four of these awards given, 2003, 4, 5, and 6. So Spencer Breslin won in 2003 for The Cat in the Hat, and again in 2006 for The Santa Claus 3, The Escape Clause, The Shaggy Dog, and Zoom. Damn, all Mm. three of them. He is the brother of Abigail Breslin. Yeah, he is, yeah. He's in The Happening. He is the brother of Abigail yep. Breslin. Yeah. Poor kid. His sister's off getting nominated for Oscars and he's in The Cat in the Hat and The Happening and winning the Spencer Breslin Award for Worst Performance by a Child Actor. I mean, it's, it's it really is cruel. My goodness, out of curiosity, I looked at some of the 10 out of 10 <laughs> yeah. reviews for this. It's, it's actually got a cult following now emphasis on cult oh yeah i'm just trying to find one particular one that i was see the problem is is that they don't let you hang on i do want to find this because it was good damn it where'd it go see this is the problem with imdb's app is that they they don't sort it very well while you're looking for it i'll read some of them this is 10 out of 10 i don't know what to say it's a very good thing for my community because i live in russia 
and my Russian fellows really appreciate the time and effort these people put into making this wonderful movie. And I want to give this 10 stars because it is so good and underrated. People who think otherwise are rubbish, as we say in Russia, Skjabirat. Alright, I found it. The title of this review is, it's a 10 out of 10 review. The title is, This Movie Saved My Marriage. No! Never has a movie changed my life so much that I would need to to write a review on its comedic genius and beauty. My wife and I really hated each other because we took things too seriously. But then we saw the might of Mike Myers as he effortlessly portrayed the person I am inside. (laughs) It taught me that I should not be afraid of my desire to be a cat. (laughs) I will become (laughs) the cat in the hat and go door to door to inform people of this incredible film. I will now describe the beauty of this movie in detail. However, disregard the creepy moments of the movie. That is the only flaw anyone could ever find in this meowy experience. In this meowy. Yeah. I learned so many words and phrases, including what's a majigger and who's a what's it. However, I disagree with the rating of the movie. I feel the ones who gave it said rating were too little of mind to comprehend the magnificence and darkness of the movie. The cat obviously, represents the innocence of America's youth as it was taken by a creepy creature or communism. As shown when he unexplainedly appeared in our home unannounced. Conrad represents the evil in our hearts and must be destroyed. And Sally is what we should aspire to be due to her astounding logical conclusions on matters. The things are weird and creepy, however, and are the only discernible flaw in the movie. Is that it? Anyways, I, just to start off, I think that we should start on a positive note. I want to hand things over to you guys for, to begin with here because <laughs> I don't want to, like, get on my soapbox and and sour the waters too early on. So why don't you tell us about your personal connections to The Cat in the Hat and why it's so important right. to you. Very similar to movies like Haunted Mansion or the live-action Grinch movie. Movies like this were on... Pretty common rotation during our childhood. To the point where, when we when we told our parents that we were doing an episode on the cat in the hat, Dad had a look on his face as if he had just been reminded of his time in war. <laughs> uh. <laughs> just, like, his eyes glazed over and you could almost hear a monkey screaming in the darkness of the jungle. I'm with you, Mr. Lewis. I want you to know I fought against it. <laughs> <laughs> um... So it was on quite often when we were kids, much like The Grinch, which Dad prefers a whole lot more. Actually likes. But he, he legitimately enjoys The Grinch. But, I don't know, when we were really little, we had, we didn't often get new DVDs of stuff, so we'd often just stick to the ones we had. And mm. this was one of those movies. We grew up watching it, and... To the point where whenever I hear that opening piece of music, that interesting David Newman score, it just makes... It, it feels like... And I know this sounds weird. It feels like I'm a kid again. I, I can almost feel the sun shining on my face when it happens. I'm, I'm just transported back to a more innocent time. It just makes me smile. Can I ask you guys, do you have this on Blu-ray? Uh, I, I don't think no. so. No. Do you want it on Blu-ray? Because I don't. You can have it if you want. (laughs) Okay. Alright. I just... I don't know. Part of it just... I understand every single one of your gripes with it. I really do. (laughs) And if I were a person of more discerning taste, I might agree. 
but I don't know. It just feels, for all of its inappropriate jokes and double entendre, it feels innocent to me. I don't know. I just feel good when I see stuff from it. I just yeah. feel happy, at, at peace, in a sense. And if I'm going to be completely honest, I do know what the movie's trying to say. When you look at the characters of Conrad and Sally, they're two sides of the same coin, ultimately. They're people who have their own ways of having fun, but their ways of doing it is to the detriment of others. Conrad, his type of fun is very destructive, and Sally's type of fun is very regimented, very ordered, and both can be damaging to other individuals, because she's a bit, she's very highly strung. And, and we see in the, in the dialogue, we see in the dialogue she has been, she has isolated herself from people she deemed as friends. She thought that yeah. what she's doing is alright. When Sally realizes that a birthday party is happening when she wasn't invited, is really her turning point, where she starts to realize, I'm being a stick in the mud. The way I see it is that, also, Larry, or rather Lawrence, is who Conrad could become. Conrad, at the beginning of the movie, is this destructive, ill-tempered little shit. And we see that Larry is, in fact, an immature, ill-tempered piece of shit who has no responsibility for anything. And that's who that version of Lawrence is who Conrad could become if he stayed on that path without the cat's intervention. Mm. The Lawrence that's in the suit shilling for a military academy, implying that that world has war, skimming over that. Okay, what would Dr. Zeus' battlefield look like? Are we to assume that this is a different world from our own? Yes, it, it's yes. gotta be. They're not, who, they're not who's, though. No, they're not who's, yeah. but this has to be a different world simply for the aesthetic. And the fact that certain things that would be entirely insane for us do exist in their world. It's heightened but we don't have isolated townships in the center of rolling hills like Anvil. Uh, it's like a high Well, reality, sure, it's but... like a fairy tale town, yeah. But by that logic, does that mean that Cinderella takes place in an alternate universe, you know? I don't think it's as clear-cut as, like, the Grinch, where none of them are human beings. Well, no, of course I mean, not. everyone in the movie is a human being except for the eldritch creatures that <laughs> come That's, out of nowhere. Yeah, you know, the cat... The things, Mrs. Kwan, Hank Humberflube, these sort of higher beings. And they have Taiwan. Taiwan is there. She watches Taiwanese Parliament. Yes, they also have yeah. a Philippines. But it's interesting, the cosmology of Dr. Zeus. It's not just this film. It got me thinking about how it works in general. Can I just speak to the point that you were making about the characters of Conrad and yeah. Sally? So with Sally, you see that through the dialogue she has when she's talking about the reasons why she has had these disagreements with people, she has a particular way that she thinks fun should be. She wants to be the bossy leader of the fun. When she is talking to Larry, and Larry says, how's my little princess? And she has that line of, Oh, I don't want to be a princess. In a constitutional monarchy, parliament has all the real power. That's her even trying to put a limiter on the nomenclature that someone can use. She is 
this really controlling person. And she seems to have this sort of hands-off approach when it comes to Conrad, where she just lets him do whatever the hell he wants, as long as he's not actively intruding. Well, she's also there to snipe at at him and recommend punishments when he Mm. does get found out as having done something wrong. I believe they're both out of whack completely at the beginning. And by the end, they begin to even out. Which is, I believe, the point of the cat in the first place. As opposed to his existence in the book as simply this chaotic force that has the kids band together, the cat's more of, more here on a purposeful intervention, is so he, to speak. Or is he just sort of bashing them into submission by making their life really difficult until they're just like, get out, leave? No, what the, what the cat is showing is that the way that they are having fun is destructive to people and will lead them down the wrong path because the cat is trying to do both at the same time. He's trying to instill rules. He's trying to be the person who leads the fun in one direction. And that direction is also being extremely chaotic and dangerous to others and destructive to the house. Sure. I'm not sure that the movie actually follows through with that as being like a le- I know that the movie says that that's the lesson that they're being teached, but I think it's more more a process of them saying it and not actually doing it. Well, that comes sure. down to both how short the movie actually is and the relative poorly done script. But the idea that I have is that ultimately what the movie is trying to say is it's fun to have fun, but you got to know how it it's important that your fun doesn't impose on others. It is important that when you're trying to engage with people, you're not just trying to get something from them. That you're, It's important to actively be offering something to the people you're interacting with. Mm. That it's as long as it isn't to... poison muffins. Yeah, because essentially what Conrad and Sally's mindset is at the beginning of the film is one of selfishness. Yeah. That is ultimately the sin that they are committing they both have their selfish wants to have fun in a certain way and they learn the ultimate extent of selfishness mainly because of conrad and his inability to follow rules any rules ultimately Mm. it's like he does it because the rule is there and that's explicitly called out in the script i think that if conrad actually went to military academy he would have gotten far far worse that he would have become even more rebellious because that was his And I mean, Larry says they don't beat them every day, (laughs) which is one of the darkest things I've ever heard in a kid's movie. Well, let's talk about Larry because I was, I I sent you a text after I saw this movie that Larry is secretly the hero of this film. No, no. And I was... If anybody is the hero of this film, ultimately there are no heroes here, but the closest we have to a hero, especially in pandemic times, is... Hank Cumberfloob. Dude has sanitizer everywhere. I've turned a real corner on that character. I admire him now. Petition to digitally insert Dr. Fauci as the character of Mr. Cumberfloob. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Fired. Fired. Fired! Tense and hostile workplace, though. Yeah, incredibly hostile. But he doesn't actually follow through with the firing of that guy. You see him come back later. At the end I feel like the, that sort of party. takes the edge off of his character a little bit. Yeah. Anyways, Larry, I sent you that, that text and I was only being halfway facetious because if you take away the sleazier aspects of his 
character. Most of what that's, he... That's like saying, oh, Dracula's a nice guy if you take away the murders. No, because that's taking away his actions, not not his uh, personality. I'm saying if you have his actions, you give his actions to someone else, okay? What does he actually do? He's trying to date the, the children's mother. Mm-hmm. He's giving her advice, advice we disagree with, but advice on how to deal with a child that is a problem and is a problem enough that she is actively considering sending him yeah. to military academy. And he does, he does, Conrad himself does absolutely nothing at all to prove Quinn or his mother wrong about what they say about him. He mm. notices while his girlfriend is at work that her children are messing up the place entirely. The dog's already gotten out once that day. It gets out again. He goes, saves the dog, goes to accurately report to their mother what is happening. When he gets there, he is assaulted and falls into an alternate dimension before being sucked out of the plumbing of the house. Dude's not okay. And he runs in manic, yelling about what has happened to him. And the whole neighborhood, presumably, then thinks he's crazy. The mother thinks he's crazy. The children lie to her about what has actually happened that day, when actually what Larry has been saying is the truth. And I'm just saying, the sleaziness of the character, the implication that he is, you know, trying to... Basically looking for a sugar mummy, I suppose, yeah. to hook on to. Well, he's a shill, too. He's he's actively selling the military academy. Well, he's recommending it. He wants to get rid of the kid. Like, let's not say that he's employed by the military academy. No. I, I wouldn't say he's a shill. I don't think shill. he's employed. I think he's a contractor for the military academy. But what I'm saying is, is that in terms of his actual structural place mm. in the film, the actions he takes, the obstacles that he presents to our main characters he doesn't do anything wrong <laughs> and it's, it's the in, reasons why well, he goes into her house when she's not home and takes shit out of the fridge that's not acceptable you're clutching at straws here i'm talking the very broad strokes the skeleton of that character and his place in no, the narrative listen, i agree if he had the energy of say the stepfather from identity then mm. he'd be in the right obviously I'm not. I, he's an antagonist in the purest sense, setting obstacles, like you said, being counter to the protagonist's goals. Sure, but I, I just find it really interesting that they make him right so often. <laughs> I can see a version of this movie where you go back and you rewrite the script to have Quinn be played by the same person who's playing the cat, and you have it be that. Quinn isn't trying to shove the kids away for his own lecherous purposes. Play the character, and you can write the character as being a genuine person. And then you have the lesson of it be to cut this character some slack and that he's trying to engage. Yes, that is a version of this movie with emotional weight and maturity. But one of the things... I mean, and I'm only being halfway facetious when I say this, but he's not trying to get rid of the kids. He's trying to get rid of Conrad. Sally can stay. (laughs) You know, it is the problem child that the mother is already having a problem with that he is trying to remove from the picture. For now. What did I say to you on on text? You know, Conrad was for sure at the US Capitol building on January the 6th. That kid is a little nightmare. He is a little nightmare. Absolutely. When he turns to his mother and says, yeah, well, I wish I had a different mother. Dude! So uncalled for. So uncalled for. She's done nothing bad to you, you 
little bastard. But also, within even within his personality as presented in the movie, we are attaching a lot of our own context to Larry. It's not necessarily just what he does in the film, you know? We're bringing, we're, we know because of the archetype of the character that he's supposed to be sleazy, that he's leeching off of the mother. We don't ever see that in the movie. We don't see him, that, we see him living in poverty, but <laughs> uh, you could make an argument that he's just embarrassed about that. I'm talking just in purely in the actions that he takes, the movie doesn't present very much at all within the script to make us dislike him. He snaps at Sally, who we all want to snap at. He's had it with Conrad, who we've all had it with, including his mother. There's very little, and, and actually there was a lot more in the deleted scenes that are on the Blu-ray disc that make him a much more explicitly villainous character, that really back up all that stuff. The problem is they deleted all of that, and what we're left with <laughs> is a guy who's trying to accurately report the misbehavior of his girlfriend's children to yeah. her, and instead probably ends up committed. I think the thing is, they should have made him more explicitly well, okay, malicious. Okay, hold on. He, he ends up being committed. What does an asylum look like in that world? Oh, the asylum in a Dr. Seuss world is all of the reasonable people. <laughs> it's it's all of the ordinary people. It's it's the ones that aren't, you know, on board with it's all of the It's not multicolored. It's not pastels. It's yeah. the only place that looks like part of our world. Yeah, <laughs> an asylum in the Dr. Seuss world is this brutalist architecture. Um, It's like, it's like a box... <laughs> Just a no, just looks like a normal house. It's a, it's a giant. I love the idea of it being a giant fuck off cube, just in the middle of a forest somewhere. I do want to emphasise. I'm not. I'm not arguing that Larry is a good guy. He's clearly a sleaze. He's clearly not a good person. But I'm just saying his. Fu- I'm talking about his function within the story and the actions that he takes within the story. No one should come away from this and think that I am standing for Larry. <laughs> But we're not pro Larry. Yes. No, we're not. But on the other side, we're not pro Conrad either. Dude's no. a little so shit. So moving on from that, I, I think that there's a pairing with, with that idea is one that I think I'm on much safer ground making this argument that the cat is the villain of the film. Sure, he's definitely the antagonist. He's the primary antagonist. If, technically, everything Larry does is preordained as part of the cat's yeah. eldritch plan. He's like the Joker. He's like He's planned for every possible... Situation, yeah, he makes that joke about that he didn't expect to cut his tail off. But, again, he's sort of... He's railroaded the children into this particular ending. John, I actually think you're more on the money about the comparison to the Joker than you think. (laughs) Okay, so the Cat in the Hat has planned this entire day, right? He explicitly says as much. So, not only does he have a deep understanding of human behavior but also enough to manipulate people into doing exactly what he wanted to do. I mean, that's the part where Conrad is sort of working through the lesson in his head, and it's done in this shot where you see the cat, and he's doing all these facial expressions, and when Conrad sort of starts figuring it out, he looks at him and is like, yes, child, you've learned. Ultimately, the Joker is a character that appears chaotic, but it's actually really thought through. These are planned actions. So the cat f- presents himself as chaos, when in actual fact, mm. 
He is anything but. Which just makes him even more sinister. That he breaks into his children's house, he encourages them to assault poor sleeping Mrs. Kwan by jumping up and down on her and using her as a raft. They don't jump on Mrs. Kwan. They jump on the couch after she had been moved. Wait, do they have two lounge rooms? Oh, I guess one is a rumpus room. messes the whole place up. He tries to murder that child with the... Yeah, he tries to murder that child at the birthday party. Then yeah, again, that kid, sh- that kid got him right that, in the that pills. That kid basically neutered him again. Yeah, it's his own fault for hiding as a pinata. Yeah. Like, that's true. What do you think? See, I would have had it be that that's the thing he wasn't See, expecting. See, it's like to if I, if if someone, you know, if a random stranger hid in my closet and then got really angry at me when I punched them in in fright. You know, you shouldn't have mm. been there in the first place. Mm. Yeah. So I'll take that off my to-do list. Back to what Harley was saying earlier, the cosmology of this whole ordeal. When it comes to the cat, he's he. we can all agree he's this sort of eldritch abomination. He's an extra-planar right. entity. He can clearly yeah. travel between worlds. He explicitly states that the mother of all messes, the mom, if you will, is... What happens when his world meets their world? Yeah, so, so he's pl- pl- he's plainly stating to them that they are not alone in the multiverse. He comes from elsewhere, and not yeah. only does he come from elsewhere, elsewhere, his world yeah. is this mirror to the world presented in the film. Both having a so my theory is that the crate is a small portable entranceway into that world and when it's opened yes it changes the house but it is somewhat contained to the house the mother of all messes doesn't stretch beyond it my theory is or is it or is it just that it didn't have time to stretch beyond it it could have i would have liked if they explicitly stated that that was a possibility and this world type of world ending threat um (laughs) (laughs) it's like in the suicide squad with a a blue beam shooting into the sky. Yeah, kinda. Like, the cops all surround the house as the house is just being torn apart from the inside, and people are turning into rabbits. If Conrad and Sally are accidentally slain before they can put the lock back on the box, it, this becomes the epicenter of a mom event, where <laughs> this extraplanar entity opens a portal into his world. This sort of uh, chaos bleeds space. And chaos bleeds into a frankly quite ordered reality. Ordered so much yeah. so that it's actually off-putting in a lot of ways. So, not only that, but this got me thinking of how reality functions in the rest of Dr. Seuss's work. Particularly stuff like The Grand True Stole Christmas and Horton Hears a Who. Now, those two stories are explicitly similar because Who's live in a sort of microverse, so to speak. In The Grand True Stole Christmas, they exist suspended deep inside a snowflake. And in Horton Hears a Who, they were speck on a dandelion. So, my theory is that in the in Horton Hears a Who specifically, Horton and the beings from his world exist more than the Who's. Because what their actions can affect the Who's reality, whereas the Who's cannot affect theirs. So in a sense, there's this hierarchy in the orrery of worlds that Dr. Seuss presents that some beings are simply more than others. The Cat in the Hat, the cat in the hat exists more than Larry does because he can quite flawlessly move through this, wor- 
the barriers between this world and the other. We don't see him use the crate to get to and from his world. We we simply see him use the, the crate. The quote unquote real world. We simply see him use the crate to summon his co workers. Thing yeah. one and thing two. You mean his in- indentured servants. I don't think they're indentured servants. They seem to have a good working relationship with him. They seem to have done this before. The look of the things makes them appear as though they are who. Yes, that's a good point. Which is a very interesting idea because perhaps they are. Perhaps that is how who's would manifest in the real world or the upper planes, so to speak. You're talking actually if Alec Baldwin or... Kelly Preston or any of these people would go to Whoville in the Grinch, they would actually be that tall and compact. They would be like giants in Whoville. No, I'm suggesting that much like the concept of... I believe that to the Who's, right, they wouldn't be giant. No, no, no. They would take up... That in in the travelling to and from no, no, no. these planes... They wouldn't shrink. Their size shifts no. to... No, 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 no. Be... I think that the cat in the hat is a extra planar individual who could shift his sh- shape at will. We see him do so uh, with the different costumes he wears over the course of the thing. And the fact he can be in multiple mm. places at once, as indicated by the cupcake and Eta sequence. I'm suggesting that Conrad, Sally, Lawrence exist more, right? So what would happen if the concept... Look, I'm getting to, into the weeds with a lot of my like comic book metaverse nonsense here but i'm suggesting that not only would lawrence be huge in the world of the who's he would be what he would take up all the space because their world is so small you should write look look, i I disagree (laughs) can we redirect back to the movie itself I just want to put this out there. I disagree with the assumption that when you move in between the planes, you retain the size that you had back in the previous world in comparison to the size of this microverse you were traveling to. I think there's a shift that takes place within the traveling. Like, if Larry ended up in Whoville, the Whoville from The Grinch, right, which is not even just a snowflake it's even smaller going into the even tinier parts of the snowflake he couldn't travel to that microverse within the theory that you're positing no, no. harley because he would tear their you're reality asunder in terms of physicality i'm talking about levels of reality he exists more than they do therefore his no, I existence think that's a, i think that's an unnecessary distinction to make because think about it if you went to say cindy lou who and you try to explain this to her, she would say, no, I have feelings. I go about my day, my life has meaning. They don't exist more or less than anyone else. Anywho, let's back talk, to the movie. Let's go back to the movie. <laughs> let's talk a bit about the humour. Okay. Yes. And it's, well, it's randomness, it's sort of barely disguised dirty jokes, uh, and more adult tendencies Dirty than, than a lot of other the children's. Key yeah. example. Yeah, but it, like, the erection that the cat gets with his um with his hat when he sees the yes. photo of the children's mother, or I mean, he makes a joke about clowns having hepatitis at some point. Yeah, like that's not veiled at it's all. Really, like one of the things one of the things screams the word term police brutality. Yeah. It's it's really <laughs> scattershot. I wonder how this is a thing. I wonder how this got past so many different people. Mm. Um, because to me, it is bizarre and misjudged on every level. And I know that, I mean, we talked about how Dr. Seuss's widow was 
not thrilled with it. I, I just like mm. to imagine this little 80-something-year-old woman sat in a private screening watching this play out in front of her in abject horror. And <laughs> the image of that is funnier to me than anything in the movie. Honestly? Yeah, I mean, Mike Myers and Alec Baldwin, when they first watched the movie, they hated it. Yeah. Both of them. And I can understand why, because it gets... There's, it, it is scattershot. There are so many different kinds of jokes. You got Dirty Ho. You got the erection joke. You've got some... You got jokes about magical time-traveling elves being lawyers, which is this really sort of straight straight joke. It's not trying to be goofy or funny. You've got the Rhode Island license plates. You never see those. You got the Universal Studios meta joke talking about the different rides and stuff it is doing so many different things within the humor at once that it is really difficult to get centered on a specific tone it's throwing everything at the wall and so little yeah. of it is sticking that's my problem i have an answer to the question you pose lawson how did this get through nobody cared that's how it got it through. was the cha-ching my dude they were in it for the money. The more absurd or dark the humour is, the better it tends to be. Mm. Personally, mm. I, like, I quite like the delivery of the... Something magical and full of wonder. <laughs> it's called a contract. Like the ultimate just... There are moments that work. I laugh when the cat comes up behind that kid at the birthday party, like about to beat him. <laughs> He was going to hit him with that giant bat. That was going to crack that kid's skull open like a grapefruit. I like the infomercial stuff. Yeah. yeah. But at the same time, there's just so much else that it's it's so rat-a-tat-tat and unfocused. It's this whirlwind of, of chaos and improv that, that I feel like maybe Welch should have tightened up more whether yeah whether given the stories that we talked about before about the behind the scenes thing here whether he he needed a tighter leash on myers yeah. as a he as did. a performer yeah. sort of thing comes down to inexperience and you know welch handles this as i think best he could have done at the time with such a strong personality as myers on set i think if he was given an actor who had more perspective on it who wasn't mm. brought in to settle a lawsuit and yeah. had a resentment brewing from that. I think the level of control that Mike Myers seemed to try to take over the film, like you were saying, he seemed to direct a actors for scenes. I think that was him saying, okay, you wanted me, you've got me. Have fun, dickheads. I didn't want to be here. Have fun. I'm going to make this as Mike Myers as I possibly <clears throat> yeah, can. Yeah, I'm going to do the most Mike Myers you've ever seen. I'm going to Mike Myers so hard that the love guru is going to fail, and then I'm going to be an inglorious bastards. I personally have a lot of fun with this movie, and if other people don't, that's perfectly fine. Like, as I've said before, art is subjective. But, and again, humor is... I do want to talk about the production design, because I want to know how the hell this thing cost $109 million to make. It looks fake at all times, and, and uh, that's sort of the point, is the over-design yeah. of everything and the colors and everything. But it looks cheap to me. It looks very ugly to me, the, the way that they have the very bright colors on color, that they will have the same color plates and cups as on the table as is they're the same color as the table like the way that they do that the way that everything kind of looks 
plasticky or, or made out of cheap Everything concrete. Everything looks like yes. a set. So how is it $109 million? Mike Myers. See, I, I also think part of that is the part where they're walking down to get on the Quan ride, that little trail that they go on looks pretty wild in terms of you got to fill that place with goo. You got to deal with all of the construction of that. You got to make sure that the thing that they're walking down is structurally sound. You gotta have a body cast of uh, Amy Hill made that they can sit on. You gotta have. You gotta basically create this roller coaster thing that goes up to a point and then it's done with CGI. The CGI as well on the fish, which we haven't even talked about the fish. I think the cost of this movie makes sense because it's going to all of these different places. And ultimately, I think some. I think the idea of doing it in live action worked a lot better for the I Grinch. hear what you're yeah. saying, but this cost $109 million, right? Star Wars yeah. Attack of the Clones cost 115 Everything was green screen in that movie, though. <laughs> Not everything, but a good they deal They didn't was. build sets for that. But everything. The, you the and makeup, McGregor could have been costumes, CGI for all they care. The production design. Sure. The quality of the effects. No, I, I agree. Well, the relative it is quality of effects. bizarre that it cost this much. The way I see it is that I think it was designed very specifically to resemble mm. not only the design of things in the Dr. Seuss books, but also the color palette that yeah. Seuss used. Yeah, but th- I think it's interesting to compare this with The Grinch, where The Grinch did much the same thing, but the way that Ron Howard shot The Grinch made it a textured world that felt lived in and had detail and had mm. had all sorts of of interesting little things in the corners, it made it seem like a real place and, and, and like something... It didn't feel like a set. No. Whereas like world. whereas this feels very antiseptic and... Also, I think some of that can come through with the somewhat pedestrian direction and some of the editing choices. Like, one of the editing choices that I hate is when he is about to do the, the test on the kids where he is going to see what kind of drop kicks they are. And just so, some of the editing, it lingers on Myers too much. And the way that it's shot is very pointer camera at a thing. It's a two shot. It's back and forth, back and forth. Back exactly. Forth. I did read I did read an article about that that pointed that out. And, and the, the person who wrote that article theorized that that might simply just have been beyond Welch's control. That because yep. of the time it took to get Myers into that costume, uh, combined mm. with the fact that they were working with relatively young children, which, you know, they have very specific labor laws yep. as to how long they could yeah. work, they might simply have been forced to shoot a lot of those scenes, the sides of them, without one another. I totally get that. Yeah. And look, they did a very similar thing with the costuming of the Cat in the Hat that they did with the Grinch. They got someone in a gigantic fursuit, which I imagine was hell in both Oh, I, I think that the Cat in the Hat suit is seems a lot less work than the Grinch suit. Oh, yeah. I think that the way that, the way that Carrie's head in particular was completely consumed by the prosthetic. That's not here with Myers. He's, he's sort of wearing a, a onesie with the face cut out. Yes, I do agree that it was probably easier, but... It, well, they learned their lessons from the It's Grinch. still incredibly difficult. And if you've got someone going through this huge makeup process, and you're working with kids, I mean, the difference does also come down to the fact that Ron Howard was yeah, more experienced. I do really dislike... Well, I won't say I dislike it, but I don't think that they're effective designs for the cat and the thing, because they are horrifying. Sure. 
I, I like that they're horrifying. Like, I get a kick out of that personally, but I don't think it's what they're going for. Or there's a bit um in the sequence where we're introduced to the things, how they, how one of them just like does this gymnastics tumble onto the roof after mm. running off up the wall, and it just like like a nightmare just runs across yeah. the ceiling. Yeah. I feel like to really sum it up, I I don't know who they were making this movie for. Sure. Are they making it for children? Are they making it for adults? Like, it's too rude for very young children. It's it's too too stupid. I feel really terrible with this, because I know you guys like it so much. But No, you can say stupid. It's, it's too stupid, stupid for adults. And the way that it's the cat and the thing are horrifying. The, the world looks like a theme park. And you've got these military school stuff. You've got rude humor, but at the same time, all this fart humor. Paris Hilton has a cameo. In the underground raid. Oh, that was her. Yeah, I was having yeah. trouble placing who like, that was. It's, it's a lot of really strange elements that come together in such a, a bizarre fashion to create a movie that just, to me, does not cohere. Well, Lawson, I've got a very simple explanation for you. They were making this movie specifically for me. Mm. <laughs> but I think that Myers is sort of at sea as the cat. Yeah. Pretty much every... Yeah. Every review I read of the film pointed out that the voice that the cat is doing is the voice of Linda Richmond, one of his characters on SNL. Mm, mm. And there is a lot of that patter that seem, it seems like a comedian flailing, drowning at sea and flailing for something to, anything at all, to find purchase I, I agree. He flails mm. a lot more than Carrie did in the Well, Carrie was playing a character who had their own motivations, their own character emotional... Arc arc yeah the cat the cat is a plot tool to get from one place to another with the people who actually have uh an arc the cat learns nothing he doesn't change in any way from beginning to end i i think dakota fanning is the only person who makes it out of this movie unscathed personally alec Alec baldwin is good he's doing a genuinely good performance as quinn but he also chose to be in the cat hat dakota fanning was nine so i can give her a pass and I can, <laughs> and I can't even blame her parents either because it's just it must have been a nice change of pace for her from all of like the really serious shit she was doing as a not eight nine ten year old yeah. where she was getting yeah. kidnapped. I think she was like twelve. She was in a movie where she was raped. I mean, it was uh, that was the space that she occupied for a very long time as an actress, and sort of I think it's interesting that Hollywood kind of doesn't know how to use her anymore, and they've moved on to Elle Fanning because she had that quality as a child. Where she seemed like a little a little adult, you know? Yeah. And she was incredibly intelligent, both on screen and off. You you know, you see her in interviews behind the scenes at the age of seven and eight, and she's just rattling off stuff about character motivation. She's the most well spoken seven, eight year old you could possibly yeah. do. That you and she had the emotional maturity that you could you could cast her as the kidnap victim and you could cast her yeah. as the rape victim and at, at least as far as we know from just seeing her public persona, she seems to have been able to handle that. I mean, I remember she had a quote when that con- there was a controversy that her parents would let her be in a movie uh, mm-hmm. where she was raped at, at that young an age. And she had a quote herself at the time that was circulated that was something like, it's not real, it's called acting. Yeah. And, and that, again, from public appearances, she does seem to have been able to keep an even keel. She has not fallen victim to the child star curse. But, no. but, but yeah, it was such a very interesting little career path for her that 
And I can't begrudge her wanting to be in a fun movie for once. Yeah, and, <laughs> mm, exactly. you know, the character of Sally is a simple one. It's mm. it's straightforward. And it's using Dakota Fanning in a, in, in a way that... I don't want to say that it's it's parodying her persona, because it, it is... I don't want to give the movie that much credit, but it, it is using her her very, like, little woman-esque image to its... Yeah to its benefit, that she behaves like an adult. She has a palm pilot that she's making her to-do lists on. And the last entry the last entry on each to-do list is make tomorrow's to-do list. Like, yeah. that sounds like something you would do. That feels like something very close to your hard Lawson. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's like she has um, to plug in be spontaneous. Yes. And, and Lawson, having lived for... I, I, I keep forgetting how old you are. I'm but having having lived for 27 years, you're like, I don't have to plug in time for being spontaneous. I just don't waste the time being spontaneous. I've always Absolutely. got a thing to do. I always know <laughs> what is on the schedule. <laughs> oh, all right. So I feel like we're reaching the end here. We're only reaching the end here because you've made it very clear to me, off podcast and on podcast, that I'm not allowed to just endlessly quote yeah. this film. But before we go, I do want to... You, you guys have not yet mentioned your weird theory about the identity of the cat. And I want to give you an opportunity to soapbox on this. Sean? Okay, it's mainly a joke. But the father in the equation is conspicuously absent, right? And we, there's no explanation as to the nature of his absence. Death or just absence on purpose. We don't know. Maybe he's, maybe he's in prison. <laughs> maybe, what, what, maybe... what is the crime, you know? what What is... Financial crimes. Yeah. yeah. I just like... like... I couldn't help flash into like a, a version of Law and Order or CSI that's set inside this world. Um, yes. But the weird, super colourful, neon flashing, you know, the the brutal murder in the middle of this twisted town with all of, like, the perfect trees and things. Yeah, like a Stepford Wives. Then you mm, get two cops just standing over the body going, we might not ever find the killer. Just another crazy it. day in Anvil. Forget it, Jim. It's Whoville Town. But no, my theory, it, my theory, and it's kind of a joke, also kind of not, is that the cat is the spirit of Conrad and Sally's father trying to teach them the lesson of chill out a bit. There's no evidence yes. to support it within the narrative or the framework of the film. Yes. But can you tell me that I'm wrong? When I texted you to say that I watched The Cat in the Hat and we had this whole conversation about Larry via text you sent me the text we can all agree that the cat is the ghost of the kid's father right and i was like no no we can't all agree with that <laughs> i mean why not anything else to add those cupcakes would be poison awful. oh yeah there's glass in it <laughs> there's not just glass it's i don't know what type of fire extinguisher mm. that was but you shouldn't eat any all that shit is toxic there's glass there's metal yeah. there's Actual poison in the 30, thirty minutes after the end of that uh, after the end of that movie, right? You know, the the movie was just thirty minutes longer. Uh, that party ends with literally everyone vomiting blood like Kurt Russell in the Hateful Eight, uh, as yeah, their yeah. insides are shredded. And yeah, <laughs> and the cat is looking through the window no. like, yeah, it is fun to have fun. And the cat has gotten away with the perfect murder. Yeah, again, because <laughs> he's pinned it on the kids. Uh and, and and the fish just has to be there watching this because fish aren't allowed to eat cupcakes. Mm. 
Do you think Humberfloob is the only one who doesn't die? I don't... Because I don't think he would eat food that isn't made by I him. I don't think he eats food that isn't made by him while he's wearing gloves yeah. and stored in the perfect temperature in perfectly sanitized yeah. Tupperware. Mm. Yeah, it feels like these, these little parties that they have, these get-togethers with potential clients, are something that Humberfloob doesn't like to have to do, but they are coming from higher up. Than him. Well, you know, th- I think the like, problem like is someone has described said to him the benefits of this, and if it allows him to afford all of the hand sanitizer that he needs, it's a bullet that he's going to take. I think the take. problem is if he wants, to- if he's a germaphobe, he simply chose the wrong line of business. Real estate. Well, there are there are few. Speaking as a germaphobe, there are few businesses that you can invo- avoid it entirely, unless you can become completely agoraphobic and work from your home then you will have no control over the yeah. environment that you work in. He, sure. he manages to have really good control over his mm. office. Almost tyrannical. In terms of the IMDb parents, guys, every single section, <laughs> every single section, sex and nudity, drugs and alcohol, violence and gore, coarse language, frightening and intense sequences, are all labelled severe. <laughs> um... Is this people being honest or people taking the piss? It's people taking there's the piss. There's violence, there's no gore, though. In the sex and nudity section, the cat reacts with interest when he sees a woman's photograph. It unfolds like a centerfold. He makes noises like, hummina, 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 ooh. His hat grows longer, implying that he has an erection. Yeah, and he also, yep. he pockets the picture. You never see that picture again. <laughs> he takes it with him. And in frightening and intense sequences... The cat may look frightening for some young viewers, despite it only being Mike Myers in a costume. Thing 1 and Thing 2 can also look frightening for young viewers. However, at the same time, this is a Dr. Seuss movie, and pretty much everything is based on the book, but the cinematography and characters may still be kind of frightening for some viewers. And lastly, a man screams, FIRED! Which may be intense for young viewers. Despite yeah. it being a Dr. Zeus film, the production design may frighten some. <laughs> well, let's just say the Dr. Zeus world is a terrifying one. Mm. A world oh, of disorder and pain, where people eat soiled ham and eggs, or uh, ritualistically <laughs> no, 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 no. jump upon their pop. It's no, terrifying. No. It's green eggs and ham, it doesn't mean that it's gone off. Yeah, there's some unfortunate... Yeah, Dr. Zeus was kind of... He was, he was not spotless no. as a person. No. He, he and his second wife were playing hop on pop together while his first wife was deeply depressed and ultimately killing herself. Mm. So that's something he has in common with Percy mm. Shelley. So before we go, why don't we each go around and give our MVP for this movie, our favourite scene or sequence, and who we would recast with the character actor. I think we all know who we would go. recast him as. Well, I if I know what you think. I don't think you're thinking what I'm thinking. So I will start us off and I'll say that my MVP here is Dakota Fanning. Again, she's the only one who can who I can really excuse entirely because she gives a good performance and she was also nine. What about Spencer Bracelet? I don't like his performance. <laughs> I'm not saying he needed an award named after him at the Stinkers Awards, but I don't like the performance. Um, I think Dakota Fanning is doing exactly what she was always so very good at doing as a younger actress, which was basically behaving like an adult on camera. And 
yeah, she's the best part of the of the movie, in my opinion. I, I can, you know, have a bit of praise for Alec Baldwin as well. I think he plays his role exactly as he should. But again, he chose to be in it, and I can't excuse him for that. In terms of my favourite scene or sequence, it's got to be the infomercial mm. sequence. Do you love making cupcakes but hate all the hard cupcake work? I know I do. <laughs> Don't forget everything you know about making cupcakes and say hello to the amazing cupcake in I'm so excited! <laughs> that is the movie at its most absurd. I used to be able to quote it by heart. I like that scene yep, so much. I still can. Um, Do you want us to quote it right now? We can quote it. No, thank you. We've... We are, by the time we have finished this, we will have recorded for longer than the movie actually even runs. So, um, yeah. Okay, uh, they, they put, you put the cupcake inator into a conventional oven. Yeah. That can't be good. Oh, no. It yeah. explodes. Seems like a wildly impractical thing to have. Just put the tray that you put the but things yet, out somehow into. the cupcakes are intact at the end. Continuity problem. No, I think that that was part of the, part of the cleanup, to be honest. Yeah, it's it's the it's the movie at its weirdest. It's the movie at its most absurd, and and so it is the part of it that I like. And it, of all of this sort of slapdash, throwing everything at the wall to see what sticks, I think most of that sequence sticks. And as for who I would recast with John Lithgow, I thought a lot about this, and I don't want John Lithgow associated with this film. <laughs> So I thought, what was the least damaging part to put him in? Because I'm not going to wimp out and say no one. So I would have John Lithgow voice the fish. He would not have to appear on screen. He could disguise his voice, be credited as Alan Smithy, <laughs> and play also the most sensible character in the whole thing. The only one who, who cannot be criticised for their behaviour. Do you want to go back in the toilet? Actually, it's a beautiful day. Why spend it indoors? Well, for me, I would have to give my MVP to David Newman. The score is beyond reproach. It is... <laughs> it's perfectly toned. What the hell for... was that, John? That was a laugh. Lawson. Uh. What do you mean, beyond reproach? That was a squawk. We're not talking about John Williams. That was a squawk that John did, uh, resembling some sort of pained bird. And Nelson uh, from The Simpsons if someone kicked him in the nut. <laughs> <laughs> no, the David Newman score just automatically puts me in a chill mood. It's It relaxes me. It's perfectly pitched to what the movie's aesthetic is forgetting the movie's execution i think it's a wonderful score and like john said it just evokes a feeling of innocence peace and it it's deeply nostalgic to me um i also have to give credit to the production design team for they realized the world as best as they were given the means to do so I would have given my MVP to Kelly Preston, but she's not in as much of it. But still, she gets a pretty bum rap for, you know, her performance in this when she, again, is playing a sensible character, pushed to her limit. My favorite scene or sequence is the infomercial, the cupcake and Ada scene. It is, it's quotable, it's funny, and a, one of the perfect examples of the Cat in the Hat's terrible eldritch powers. He can be in multiple places at once. He can be both a uh, performer and audience. He can uh, mutilate himself and suffer no true long-lasting ill effects. He could threaten to kill himself. Uh, he explicitly. can multiply himself. Yeah. Um, honestly, there is no scene that explains his terrible yet awesome power more than this one. If I would cast John Lithgow as any character, I was thinking the, the character of the Cat in the Hat, but no, I'd get him as Larry but pitch him differently. Basically, pitch him as if he were 
the stepfather from Identity, or just give him honest to god stepfather energy. Like he he's trying to be the kind of person who sets boundaries for Conrad. He's trying to help his girlfriend control her kid, but you know he's doing the best he can. And maybe military academy helped straighten him out. And he thinks it might do the same for Conrad. Uh, just the um, just the image of John Lithgow in army camo is giving me life. It implies right now. that he once held a gun and shot someone. Yes. Which is kind of what I always want to go he for. He has done this. that in movies before. Not enough, Yeah, though. but has he gone full-on Rambo? No, we haven't no. been blessed I'm, with that I'm yet. I'm really hoping... I, I've said it before on the podcast, but I'm really hoping that he gets the chance to pull a gun out on that the old man show he's doing with Jeff Bridges. Yeah. God, he better. But yeah, I get him as Lawrence. You pitch the character differently, it can really work as a story about learning to respect the people in your life, especially someone who's found family with you. Okay, so for me, my MVP is... It's difficult. Yeah, Dakota Fatting too. I think she, she does come out of this movie relatively unscathed, and she's still doing a pretty good job in this. I think my favorite scene is, again, the infomercial where he chops his own tail off. Do you love making cupcakes, but hate all the cu- hard cupcake-making work? Well, say hello to the amazing cupcake Anator. I-, I love that. And I would either get Lisko as Hank Humberfloob, because you can see it, or the cat. I think you bring a different, more genuine energy to the cat. Mm. Plus, I-, I would love to see him s- try to jump over... I would just love to see him say the words, All right, Nevin, time to die. Because he would be really interesting saying a lot of those lines. We're doing a truly bizarre thing right now. <laughs> okay, if 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 Lithgow isn't already weirded out by our general demeanor about him this and his work, that. I think this, this would really disturb him. <laughs> this idea that we are placing him into other people's movies. The, see, this is the question we're going to have to ask ourselves. What do we do for this segment when we get to a movie that already has John Lithgow in it? Don't have it. Who else? No, 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 no. No, piss off. <laughs> we have... We, <laughs> we have it be Lithgow's in it, but who else in the movie do we have him playing no. as well? So it's in, in addition, addition to... to. In addition it is two to... lift guys, in the same way that there are two cat and hats on screen for the um yes. the infomercial sequence, yes. there would be two John yes. Lithgows. Yes, absolutely. Or who would we okay. replace Lithgow with? No, that seems antithetical to the point of this being a pro-Lithgow podcast. There is no, no one who could replace John Lithgow. You make an excellent <laughs> Exactly. Point. Now we get to probably the most contentious part of this. Are we a pro-cat-in-the-hat <laughs> podcast? Lawson, I'm guessing no. I'm saying no. I'm saying no. <laughs> um, I can't go there. I Again, I used to really like this film. It was out so long in the States before it came out in Australia that actually a classmate of mine had gone overseas and brought back a DVD of it. <laughs> and the whole, the whole class watched it on the last day of class before Easter break. Before it had come out in That's cinemas. outstanding. Yeah. That is... Um, oh, my God. <laughs> and, like, it, it didn't come out anywhere other than the United States in 2003. They held it for a long time, which was a mistake because of how badly it was received. But but I liked this film. I watched it. 
I watched it then. I went to saw it in the cinemas when it came out. Rented the DVD multiple times. I don't think I ever owned the DVD, but I liked this film. I don't like it any longer. It's it is short, but somehow drags. The humor is frequently just not funny. Myers mugging at the camera is just irritating. I can't. I can't do it. I can't say that I'm. You've put away childish things. Yeah. Well, not even that. I'm put. I've put away. See, and this goes back to the thing that that I disagree with Harley saying that um, we should give give it a pass because on some things because it's children's film. I don't think we should because it's a bad children's film. I think that kids are smarter than this. There are there are. I wasn't. This movie. This movie is all calories and and no nutrients whatsoever and i've got to say i'm i'm not a parent and i don't intend to become one but i would really think twice if i was before showing my kid this movie not because it i i think it would corrupt them or anything bullshitty like that <laughs> but because i think that children deserve a higher standard than what this movie is offering in terms of its intelligence and in terms of of the respect with which it treats its audience Maybe maybe it does corrupt children. Maybe if you play it in reverse, the cat in the hat ends up saying, Hail Satan, Hail Satan. Well, you would be Exhibit A in that argument, John, so... Um, sure. So, no, I, I can't do it. I can't do it. Sorry, but I can't do it. Don't apologise to me. Apologise to Bo Welch. Bo Welch should apologise to me. <laughs> if, if George Clooney and Joel Schumacher spent every encounter with a with a critic of Batman and Robin apologising for that movie, then Bo Welch and Mike Myers sure as hell for this. Sure as hell should for this. Anyway. Alright, so... Again, I find myself in a weird situation. I feel bad, kind of, because you guys don't like feel it bad. so me? It's literally all about opinion. That's the framework of this podcast. Yeah, but it's like, you guys tend to be so positive so often that when I go really negative while you guys are staying positive, it makes me feel like, oh, there's... There's, uh, I, I listen to this podcast, it's got Harley in it, and John in it, and then there's Lawson, the asshole. Is there, like, an element of FOMO, fear of missing out? Uh, I don't know. I just, I feel like I come off as a grouch. No, sometimes. come off as a Grinch. <laughs> there, they didn't hate the movie, they're laughing. Uh. Lawson's heart grew three sizes that day. He went into cardiac arrest, and he had to be taken to the and hospital. And then his heart subsequently shrank even smaller than before. Uh, I... This is very complicated for me. Do I say yes because it's very important to me and it's very nostalgic for me? Or do I judge it on its actual terms? I think it helps to, as, as we have said before, imagine that we are running a fantasy yeah. Blu-ray line so, of our endorsed films. Personally, no. I can't, because for me to vote otherwise would be ignoring the movie's many, many faults. I love it. Still, it is a part of me that has grown malignant over time and simply cannot be removed. But does that mean I can give it a pass for this? No, I can't. I'm not against it. I can't be against it. It's, it's, it's like being against... My left leg, but I don't have to champion my left leg as something fantastic to the masses now, do I? Oh, I'm pro this movie. <laughs> I knew you would be. Yeah, I'm gonna be the contrarian here. It's just such a formative part of the person I am, and listeners here would understand I'm the chaotic one on here. I bring the weirdest energy, and this movie is 
exhibit B as to why that is. What was what's exhibit A? Austin Powers. I thought we summed that up pretty nicely. Uh-huh. A lot of movies that we've talked about, like The Grinch and all that as well. It is so deeply a part of me that I can't say that I'm not pro it. Not that it would make any difference. Right. Well, there you go. We are not a pro Cat in the Hat podcast. Oh. Obviously, because... Uh, Jean voted that he is pro. We won't be doing the second vote to see if we were anti, but I would like it on record that if we did, I would have voted yes. Um. And I would have voted no, because I will be the sane, safe middle ground. I would also like to point out that I forgot to mention this in the body of the podcast, but The Cat in the Hat cost $30 million more to make than The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, and The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen made a good... $50 $50 million more than the cat in the hat. So I just want to rub that in your face there. <laughs> there is no justice in this world unless we make it ourselves. Which had a higher uh, cultural impact? Oh, cat in the hat. Yeah. Does it make it well, good? Does it make it successful? Does the meme capacity of the cat in the hat outweigh the removing of Sean Connery from cinema? Oh. For the last 20, almost 20 years of his life. That's a complicated question. We'll leave that up to the audience to answer. See, see. No, no, see, that's that's interesting, because are we looking oh. at... Okay, we... so I would argue that Cat in the Hat has a larger cultural cachet, because while it removed Sean Connery, he was always going to leave movies eventually at some point, be it through death or through choosing. Whereas, through the act of creation, creating this movie, it has added... Means well, the to is, the world. It has created oh, subcultures. Sure, but like Sean Connery, Sean Connery, I mean, he was in his 70s when he retired. I think you could very easily have actors work. Christopher Plummer worked up till he was 90 something, you know, he worked until he died. Uh, I'm not, yeah, but he's, I'm not, he had an amazing work ethic. I'm not saying that Sean Connery would have, but I, I think that if you had another 10 years out of Sean Connery, I think you'd get around 15 you'd movies get him in there. Skyfall. And I, I think that, yeah. There could have been some stuff in there that... Yeah, but LXG was so shit that we'll never know. I know, that's what I'm saying. LXG's cultural impact is greater because it cancelled out this entire other what could have been. You're talking more about potential and the absence of someone in the media landscape, apart from Sir Billy. While John is more arguing for something that we can actually tangibly see. All I'm saying is that... Would Sir Billy exist if Leave Extraordinary Gentleman didn't? I, who knows? All I'm saying is that Blofeld couldn't take out Bond, but League of Extraordinary Gentlemen could. He makes an excellent point. <laughs> uh, at any rate. Anyways, let's, sure. let's talk about what we will be doing next week. We will be doing an extremely hard pivot uh, <laughs> once again, and we'll be moving on from the cat in the hat to talk instead about Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. If you would like to follow along at home, you share out a lot. It's not available for streaming anywhere in Australia. It is not available it is not available for purchase or rental online anywhere in Australia. Harley has to drive to my house <laughs> to pick up my region free, free Blu-ray of it so we can do an episode. It'll be of, worth it. I've seen this. the movie and I'll tell you right now I love the love it a lot. Yeah, me too. Uh, so tune in next week for I- that. See, I don't only love really stupid things. I'm cultured. In all that that term suggests, 
cultured, as in you like cultured, as in you like certain things from culture that others would deem to have value, and also cultured, as in a fungus or a germ. Yes. Or a mole. Uh, if you would like to reach us, you can find us at each of our blogs. You can find Lawson at Extra Do the Candy Counter. You can find John and I on the bright side. You can also reach us through our Twitter, which is the best place to leave us episode specific feedback and movie recommendations, and also to answer the question whether or not you think League of Extraordinary Gentlemen or the Cat in the Hat are more culturally significant than each other. You can also comment, rate, and subscribe on your podcast app of choice. Uh, just keep in mind, if you comment on your podcast app of choice, that is, on most platforms, uh, regulated to commenting on the podcast on the whole, not specific episodes. Please do like, comment, and subscribe. In the future, there are indeed those who decide to become cyborgs, to adopt the physical prowess and mental computing power of the machines, but retain that spark of what keeps them human. Personally, I have chosen to remain fully human. I look at it like the philosophical idea of the ship of Theseus. How much can you remove from yourself before you are no longer yourself? And when does the thing that has been built become somebody else through its lived experience? I wish to retain as much of my human self as possible, but those eye enhancements are super tempting. Those who are now cyborgs are given positions in the dioramas depicting the most dangerous human activities, such as skiing or armed gladiatorial combat. And the such. I have been twin one. It's always like really jarring how we move on from from the narrative to the outros. Uh, This episode has gone pretty much exactly how I thought it would. (laughs) I have been. And could it ever have gone any other way? And we're still here. Yeah, we're still here. We got through it. We've talked about the cat in the hat longer than the runtime of the cat in the hat. We have waded (laughs) through the Mike and Maya. I have been twin one. And I have been Twin 2. You may also call me Twin King, Twin Thing, Chocolate Thunder, or Ben. I'll start that all again. I have been Holly Lewis. I've been Lawson Keeney. And I have been, and I will continue to be Jean Lewis. It's getting better, a little better, all the time. How to end it, it's getting better, a little better, since you've been mine. Dirty hoe.